As followers of Jesus in the midst of another polarizing election season, we don't have the choice to walk away from our responsibility to change broken policies that are breaking our neighbors or to end relationships with our family and friends who might think differently than we do. That's why this season of the Everyday Peacemaking Podcast is exploring how we are to engage politics as citizens of the kingdom of God and the United States. It's going to be hard and messy, but it's holy work, and we're here for it all. Thanks for joining us for Peace in Politics, becoming everyday peacemakers in and outside of the voting booth. Okay, John. Hello. Uh, hey. Good to see you. Good to see you too. Um, okay, we're back at it. Talking about peace and politics together, helping our listeners, our peacemakers. So who do we have on today? Who is helping frame and shape our peacemaking practices this election season? You bet. Uh, we have Dr. David Gushy, who um, is someone I've appreciated for a long time. And we'll talk about it in this episode, our, our relationship. He's my PhD advisor. So I spend lots of time in the in relationship and in thought with this guy. And I can't wait for all of you to jump in because you, you're going to hear an academic who's thoughtful but deeply, deeply grounded as a follower of Jesus. Um, so he can say hard things in ways that are coming from, I think, a, as healthy place as you can hear them. So um, yeah. it's going to be good. Yeah, I it's, it, it's a great conversation. And I was really excited uh, when I saw that we were going to get to chat with him because I've seen his work in other places and mm-hmm. I've heard you mention him. Um, and so I just got to have a front row seat at this just amazing conversation between you who is an academic that I really respect John and then David Pigashi who's like one of my new favorite thinkers around Christian ethics so yeah let's listen to our conversation hello everyday peacemaking podcast listeners there's two things with global immersion we wanted to let you know about first this podcast would not be happening if it wasn't for our embers community This is a collective of folks from all across the country and the world who give money every single month to help fund our everyday peacemaking resources like our monthly periodical called The Monthly Peace, our daily contemplative contemplative prayers, webinars, and this podcast. So uh, if you'd like to join this community of funders for five bucks a month or 500 bucks a month, we would be thrilled. You can follow the link in the show notes or go to our website, globalimmerse.org, to jump in on that. Second, We're about to open up applications for our 2023 leadership cohorts. Uh, These cohorts are designed for faith leaders who want to go on a journey of discovery in the intimate company of peers and trusted guides. We want to do the slow, hard work that leads to healing and renewed vision for who you are and I am and how we will collectively lead restoratively in the church of the future. These cohorts include in-person retreats, online learning, coaching, and immersive experiences. One... Uh, The Journey of Hope cohort culminates in a trip to Northern Ireland to learn from uh, other peacemakers in that global context. And the other, uh, Journey Home, culminates with a pilgrimage on the Camino de Santiago where we seek to confront the conflict within ourselves that inhibit our ability to lead towards equity and justice and peace. So, space is very limited. Jump on it and you can get more information and apply in the show notes or go to globalimmerse.org-leaders.
Okay, today we are with uh, Dr. David Gushy, who uh, is a friend and also uh, my PhD advisor. So, you know, I better, <laughs> this interview better go well, Ashita, or else I'm going to be in deep, deep trouble here. Um, <laughs> so it is, it is a gift to have you with us. Thanks for, for jumping in. John, it is good to be with you and Oshida and to, to speak with your community. And uh, I am proud to be your PhD advisor. And you, you, you could not get in trouble. I could not imagine anything you would do that would get you in trouble. So you just relax <laughs> and have, okay. have at it today. Oh, we're going to push some boundaries. I like it. There we go. Uh, so, so David is, is a Christian ethicist and uh, deeply influenced by the legacy and tradition and relationship with Dr. Glenn Stassen, who developed the Just Peacemaking Theory, which has been core to our development organizationally, Global Immersion, in, in building our theology and practice for everyday peacemaking. So um, that's that's a professional side that's really important. And then, as I said, on a personal level, David's been a friend and a mentor, really, in this work of peacemaking and ethics for about a decade, and uh, and now very tangibly as I enter back into the academic world the last couple of years. Um, so as we're, David, as we're talking about peace and politics, there's a few definitions or assumptions we're using. I want to just toss out at the beginning so we're on the same page, and then, um, and, and then bring it to you to give a bit of self-introduction. The first is how we talk about peace. We, t- we define peace as a holistic repair of relationships, and, and that can happen in the relationship myself, uh, with God on an interpersonal level with my neighbor or my family or on a systemic level with the nation or the world. So there's three different tiers for with, with which we're thinking about peace, but it's a holistic repair of relationship. The second is when we talk about peacemaking, we're talking about a proactive movement toward conflict with tools to heal and transform. So oftentimes peacemaking can be associated with peacekeeping, which is really about maintaining a status quo, which is some kind of pseudo peace, usually allows broken systems and power structures to remain in place that continue to oppress those on the underside of those systems. So peacemaking is the opposite of that. It's moving towards the hard conversations, moving towards the policy changes that heal and transform. And lastly, when we talk about politics, we're simply defining it as the ordering of society, that we all as a society have to decide how we order ourselves. And as citizens of the kingdom of God, we probably have something to say about that as part of a nation state called the United States that happens to be a democracy. So um, th- those are some key key terms that we want to lay out up front. And with that being said, um, you are an academic. You're also a practitioner in many ways, and um, and you've been a local pastor for many years. And um, the last few years have been crazy for all of us, and for a million reasons, from COVID to politics to on and on and on. Um, within your everyday life and in your expertise in your field, how would you say you've been showing up in the last few years and, and, and interact with that as, as a form of, of self-introduction? Um, well, as a professor, I've been trying to show up by providing quality education to students under COVID conditions. Uh, with COVID mm. affecting people in some very different in very profound ways. Um, so COVID, COVID is in the backdrop of everything in the sense of, um, the sense also of the difficulty of our society and many societies to cope with COVID um, has helped to 
I don't know, added another layer to the question of, is our democracy working? Is, mm-hmm. is our governing system working if we can't do any better on COVID than we've done over these two and a half years? Yeah. So it's helped to uh, drive me back to questions of the functioning of our society and the ordering of our, of our politics. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have this new book coming out about democracy, which I, I imagine we'll talk about later, but that's one way. Um, I've been trying to, um, to keep church, the church uh, that I'm in has moved. I'm in a, a little church called Townview Baptist Church uh, in Kennesaw, which is a bit to my west. But um, I'm there in part because it's a church that took a huge hit when it decided to become inclusive on LGBTQ. Um, mm. And they lost a lot of people. They got kicked out of the Southern Baptist Convention. And I decided to move my membership there in 2020 hmm. um, to, and my, my mother-in-law came too. She's Baptist as well. That's so amazing. we're over there and we're trying to, to serve and give and, and help to provide some, some strength to a, a church that did the right thing in our view, but, but has taken a big hit for it. So those are some, mm-hmm. those are some things. Um, I've also in these last couple of years become a professor at the Free University of Amsterdam and uh, International Baptist Seminary, where we get pretty cool students like John Huckins. Uh, so I'm trying to show up by supervising PhD students, training up the next generation. Long after yeah. I'm gone, in the second half of the 21st century, you all will be doing your work. And that's, I'm thinking a lot about legacy. I turned 60 this mm-hmm. summer. I'm still in shock. I can't believe it. <laughs> but once you hit the six. You know, it's not 26, it's not 36, this is 6-0. Once you hit that, you start thinking about legacy a little bit more. And so yeah. uh, that's, I'm trying to show up by leaving a legacy of, of students who, who will make a difference long after I'm gone. Mm. That's so good. So I have, like everybody else, have been hearing a lot of calls to protect our democracy, to be aware of the danger that our democracy is in. Um, and I will, and a, a little bit about me is I came into this work of peacemaking with a lot of Mennonite influences, and so I'm I've always been a, very skeptical of language around like the democracy or country because I have I came in with a very like kingdom mentality. We you know that's we're the kingdom of God. That's America. You know, yeah. Christian first, American second. So the past few months I've been listening to a lot of conversations and a lot of calls to pay attention to the democracy um, and that it's important for us to protect our democracy because in a lot of ways the United States is like a modern modern empire and democracy is at our core and um, democracy in a lot of ways helps us define how we want to function and live as a society it still makes me nervous so my question to you is why is democracy important, especially as we approach our call to be peacemakers? Why should we think about the democracy? Why does it need to be protected? Um, that's a great question, Oshida. And I've just been thinking a lot about this. Um, I think we're in a moment where we need to um, say a couple of things. One is Christians can be followers of Jesus in any political system, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. our ultimate citizenship is the kingdom of God. 
Um, all earthly citizenship is provisional and secondary, so we never want to absolutize any political system. And nationalism, essentially, is when you kind of fall in love with your country, you become ultra-patriotic to the point that your loyalties get confused, right? And mm -hmm. so there's a lot of talk about Christian nationalism these days, too. It's a kind of a confusion of Christ and America and uh, an identification of the one with the other, which is basically idolatry. Mm -hmm. um, so when you're talking about democracy versus uh, communism versus one one man rule versus all kinds of other political systems, you're just asking what has history shown to be the best ordering of society in terms of advancing the common good which I, I, I saw a nice summary of that recently. The common good looks like peace, justice, and flourishing. Mm -hmm. Okay. So a reason to care about democracy is that while all democracies are imperfect, democracies have proven much better than other kinds of systems in protecting the rights of the powerless relative to the powerful um, in giving more of a voice to more people um, in creating a political system in which the flourishing of all rather than a few is more likely to be taken seriously um, and in protecting against the abuse of power by one person or by a small cohort of people who have all the power. Um, so what Glenn Stassen used to say, and it's in my new book, is democracy reflects Christian insights related to both um, the need to guard against authoritarian concentrations of power, um, the need to care about the rights of all people, especially uh, vulnerable minorities of various types, convictional, religious, or racial, or ethnic, gender, or whatever, um, and um, a democracy, a good democracy, has a sturdy constitution, good rule of law, profound civil rights and human rights protections, and various checks against the concentration of power. Mm -hmm. So this matters because other alternatives have weaker commitments in those areas. Power centralizes and concentrates. Dictators get to determine everything that happens. The money tends to be sucked into the hands of the powerful uh, individual or family or oligarchy. Um, and dissent is, is squashed often at the point of a gun. So one reason, to, you know, one reason to care about democracy is because autocracy um, generally is accompanied by violence against dissenters mm -hmm. and by civil, civil conflict as... Because the human nature is such that if, if people get squashed, they will rebel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so democracy tends to relate to a more peaceful civic order um, because people feel like at least their voice is heard and their rights are respected and they can get their day in court if they feel like they've been mistreated. Mm -hmm. So, again, if we lived in the most dictatorial, awful country in the world and we were followers of Jesus, we could still be followers of Jesus. However, we might be in prison for being followers of Jesus. We might die mm -hmm. for being followers of Jesus. Uh, we might be tortured for being followers of Jesus. We 
could still be that. But in this world, we have to seek the best arrangement of of society and of, of government so that not just we, but all of our neighbors have the best chance to live in peace and justice and abundance. Mm. Yeah. So I'm really curious to hear you give a definition or even share your experience with Christian nationalism, because you just brought that up. And as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking that Christian nationalism poses a threat to democracy. Um, so I'm just wondering, can you just share a little bit more about like, what does that mean? What does that look like? I know that you mentioned in an article that I read once that, you know, you're the experience um, that you had with Christians in like the, in 1978 and the 70s were very like kind-hearted, loving, welcoming people who's because of their devotion to God cared for their neighbor. Um but that's not what we're seeing right now. We see a rise in Christian nationalism and that that feels to me to coincide with that lack of like Christ-like love for a neighbor um, mm. that would create us, that would create a society where there is peace and flourishing and justice. So do you see Christian nationalism as a problem? And if so, can you just describe what that looks like, what that is for us? Um I think there's a little bit of conceptual confusion around that phrase, Christian nationalism. Um, mm-hmm. Let me maybe make a couple of distinctions. One, I mean, the older way we used to use the term nationalism in Christian ethics was it's like ultra patriotism, patriotism on steroids, right? Mm-hmm. So a nationalist is somebody who loves their country so passionately that they tend to say the only thing that matters is the well-being of my country. What happens in other countries doesn't matter at all. Mm-hmm. National pride, way over the top. Christian nationalism in that sense would be Christians who buy into nationalism and they think that that's what Jesus is all about. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And that, again, is a form of idolatry. Right. Okay. Now, in the newer discussion in a book by Samuel Whitehead, no, Sam Perry and Andrew Whitehead called taking America back for God, um, they define Christian nationalism a little bit differently. It is ultra-patriotism, but it is, they also associate it with a cluster of attitudes like militarism, uh, patriarchy, um, mm-hmm. sexism, kind of uh, anti-immigrant, xenophobia, mm-hmm. um, uh, and so basically, in whiteness, it's, it's all about whiteness, too. So mm-hmm. Christian nationalism in this sense is the idea that America is, always has been, and always should be a nation dominated by, essentially, white, straight, conservative Christian men, um, and that taking America back for God means reinstating this group and this vision as the center of the nation. So it's a reaction against every form of inclusiveness that has developed in our country, especially since the 50s, really. It's, it's, it doesn't want a, a society of shared power, of multiple people of multiple races and identities and language and, and uh, you know, ethnic backgrounds and sexuality and so on sharing an equal spot at the table. It wants a predominant white, straight, male, Christian power nation like that. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it it can sometimes also be impatient with democracy in America because democracy in America now, however imperfect it is, does reflect the voices of this more diverse pluralistic country that we now live in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if you're in modern America in the year 2022 and you believe that white, straight Christian men should be in charge, but these white, straight, conservative Christian men, maybe their provision is not prevailing, they're losing elections in this or that district or this or that state because people of color and women and and gay people and uh, naturalized immigrants and so on are voting, then they have to decide, are they going to accept that we live in a democracy with all these voices now? Or are they going to say, maybe we can manipulate democracy so that those voices are not as powerful? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe we can yeah. draw the district lines so that they don't get as, or maybe we don't count all those votes. Yeah. 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 Can I jump in on that? Um, because I think this is important. And, and I know we want to get to the relational question too of like, hey, okay, how do we, engage this political season with those who think differently than us as a peacemaking practice. But let me push uh, one step further in this conversation around democracy. Um, In your new book that's coming out, uh, Defending Democracy from Its Christian Enemies, a compelling title, and I've read it and it's really helpful. You use the language, uh, you kind of move us through what you just described around Christian nationalism and the nuance of Christian nationism. And then you go and you build you you build some new terminology, new language, and you call it uh, ARC, authoritarian reactionary Christianity, uh, which I would say in short form is uh, when Christians feel like things there's a revolution uh, that doesn't doesn't help us, then we react to try to get things back to the way things were before the revolution. So after the '60s, there's a reaction with the religious right in the '80s to get things back to the way they once were. We hear this language yeah. now today of MAGA, make America great again, um, because we want things to be back to that that version of America you used to describe that's white and male and straight. And it, when it gets out of control, we need to get things back into our hands of power. Mm-hmm. Um, it really helps frame things from a bit of a wider perspective rather than just like this polarizing left, right, Trumpism, non you know. No, this is a phenomenon throughout history when when we're trying to order society – that is leads to justice and peace and flourishing, those in power get pissed off and they react and it gives us some kind of pseudo-Christianity that becomes an intoxicating civil religion, really. And I wonder if you could just summarize that that language you're using and why it's important for us as Christians going into this midterm season to see that. This is not just a Trump thing or a MAGA thing. This is a, yeah. a bigger phenomenon throughout history. Um, I'm, thank you, John. I'm able to show in the book that you can see this tendency at least as far back as the 18th century. Mm -hmm. Um, I talk about um, the 19th century and early 20th century, things that happened in France and Germany. Um, And then you can can see it spike again in the 60s with all the social changes of the 60s. And I think you see it intensify after 2010, partly because of Obama freaking out white people, right? And partly because of social media accelerating all outrage. It also is a global phenomenon. The same kind of conversation that we're having um, is happening in many, many places in the world today. So the paradigm I develop is 
authoritarianism, meaning a kind of a centralization of power and an impatience with shared power, mm-hmm. um, which can be anti-democratic, openly anti-democratic. Reactionary, meaning it is freaked out by social changes that it doesn't like. Yep. Mainly pluralism yeah. and diversity of opinion and of, of everything else, skin color, every other diversity, right? Um, and it's identified with Christianity as if that's what Jesus is all about, is authoritarianism and reaction. And then it moves into politics with an agenda of MAGA or make Hungary great again or make Poland great again or make Brazil great mm. again. or It's, yeah. it's international. Yeah. And what's increasingly clear is the sense of desperation and frustration on that side is so profound that they're spilling beyond democratic boundaries. Mm. And I mm. think this is a way to make sense of the election stuff after 2020. I don't know how many people actually believed the lie that the election was rigged, but part of the appeal for millions was that it it connected with their deepest fear that they were losing their country to all these new ideas mm-hmm. and people and new diversities and so on. And so yeah. either the election, you might say that either the election was rigged because of tampering with voting machines or more profoundly, the election was quote unquote rigged because all these people who shouldn't even be here are voting and voting in ways that we don't like. Yeah. Mm. It's about that. And in that sense, it connects to like the voter suppression stuff. Um, and you know what areas are always targeted for these? Oh, there was, it was rigged. It's always urban. It's Detroit. It's, you know, it's um, urban Atlanta. So this is code partly for some people have too much voting power and we and their votes shouldn't count. I actually saw some guy on, you know, say that basically what we really need to go back to is the franchise, the vote being reserved to white men of property again. Jeez. Wow. So so really freaked out authoritarian reaction to, to unwelcome changes. And a lot of it is religious because the deeper diagnosis is godless moral relativism is on the march mm-hmm. and and you know that gets associated with um with of course the fact that there are people who are not white christians who have a voice in this country now the fact that many of these people who are not white christian well they're not white but they're also christian it doesn't mm-hmm. register mm-hmm. right so anyway it's a global trend and there is an anti-democratic edge to it and in some places, actively undermining democracy and creating something that is post-democracy. And a good example of that is in Hungary. Mm. Mm. So as I'm listening to you describe this, and it's so helpful to think of what we're seeing in our uncles, our aunts, our neighbors, people in our church that we've worshipped with for years, and then all of a sudden... <clears throat> Some of their views around us have been exposed and we're like, wow, how can we be in fellowship with one another? How can we take the Eucharist next to one another? Mm. Um, as I'm hearing you describe it this way, for me, thinking about this as a peacemaker, somebody who wants to move towards the conflict, um, you've given me an empathy and just an awareness of like, this is not necessarily somebody who enjoys or who has chosen to have bigoted ideas, but those ideas is, have come out of this place of fear. This, I, these ideas and has come out of a place of vulnerability 
Um, and so that has actually helped me really humanize the people that I need to enter into conversation with that around politics. We have, we have different convictions around politics and I know that we have to have a conversation or we know we, I have to be in community with them. So I want to ask you a little bit more, like what, what do, what could we do or how do we maintain relationships with people who have different political ideas and who maybe even might be leaning into that fear? What does living in peace and unity look like to you? Um, it's like two tracks on the, on the one hand, I mean, I think that we need to continue to engage the political system and not, and not get so frustrated that we ourselves give up. So we need to continue to vote and continue to study the issues and continue to be activists for specific dimensions of justice and peace and human flourishing. Right. Mm -hmm. But then we realize that there are a lot of people, maybe even our, our relatives, fellow church members who will vote completely different from us, whose politics looks completely different, who are actively opposed to everything we think is right. And that's hard. That's really hard. Mm -hmm. Thanksgiving tables have been really tense in this country for the last number of years, haven't they? Right? Um, a lot of people trying to avoid, <laughs> what can we talk about besides what's on everybody's mind, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> Uh, how about uh, how about those Padres? How are they doing? You know, uh, how about those twins? You know, anything, just anything to avoid talking about it. Mm -hmm. um, I do think, in my own experience, there have been times where you call a timeout and say, let's not go here today. We don't mm -hmm. have to talk about this every time we get together. Mm -hmm. But when we're ready, when we're spiritually prepared, when both sides agree, let's go ahead and have this conversation then I think you have it. So, um, I mean, in my own family, not my immediate family, but close family, uh, the whole last five years have been filled with broken relationships over politics. Mm -hmm. People not speaking to each other for like over a year because of politics. This is real stuff. Um, and it's scary because like if family members can't even talk to each other, what does that say about the rest of society, right? Yeah. Right. So I do think that in terms of your definition of peacemaking, we do have to proactively move toward the conflict, which means having a conversation, which involves, I think a good conversation is help me understand how you are getting to where you are getting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's not a bad thing to ask what are you most afraid of? What are you most upset about? I think politics is so often visceral and irrational. Mm -hmm. It's not about reasoned arguments about what the environmental policy should be. And it's more, it's much more raw than that, you know? Mm -hmm. um, what are you most afraid of? And my research on this book, I think I've got a much better understanding of what the other side is most afraid of. I think what they're most afraid of is that the Christian faith and values, well, this is one level, the Christian faith and values that they once held dear will not be believed in by their children and grandchildren because the dominant cultural environment is going to discredit or laugh at those values and make them not cool. 
Mm. So they're afraid yeah. of they're afraid that their children and grandchildren will no longer believe the Christian faith. Yeah. Uh, and will no longer practice Christian moral values. They're afraid of that. But unfortunately, it's all tangled up for a lot of people, not everybody, but for a lot of people, it's also they're afraid of losing power in a, a culture that they are accustomed to being in charge of. Hmm. And but they, they wouldn't say it that way. way. Do you think they, they, think they wouldn't harder. express I think that's harder to yeah. say. Yeah. Right? But if you ask them, well, why were you so opposed to, say, Barack Obama? Somewhere in there, for a lot of people, is he's not one of us. Oh, okay. Hmm. And so that's why you had all the like birtherism stuff and the, you know, he was secretly a Muslim. That was code for he's not one of us. <laughs> um, I think one reason why Joe Biden could get elected president, but probably Kamala Harris couldn't have in 2020, it's the one of us thing. Mm hmm. It's white maleness at the center of power in this country. Um, yeah. so, so people have much more difficulty with the one of us piece. I think that's a deeper layer of the conversation that involves much more self-awareness and not everybody's there. Mm -hmm. But if you ask them about the, what are your concerns for your children or your grandchildren? Then I think you might be able to get a conversation started. Yeah. Okay, so John and David, I am, I'm curious. So as white men, <clears throat> what would you need to hear to, if, like, if you were to have that fear, what, what would you need to hear to uh, at least honor it or validate it or like mm. acknowledge it? Like what would, if I were sitting across from somebody, me as a black woman, sitting across from a white man, and I hear that sort of sentiment come towards me. They're not one of us, or they cheated this system, or I didn't have affirmative action. Like so, those are all, those are all rooted in people like me used to have power. People like me no longer have power. So I can pick up that. I'm sitting here wondering, and I'm wondering. I'm speaking almost for our listeners too. Like, okay, then what response could I say back to you that would um, that would dis diffuse? some of that anxiety and allow us to have a deeper conversation or at least a helpful conversation that acknowledges that. That is such a beautiful question. And it's a gracious question because what mm -hmm. one proper or possible response would be to say too bad, dude, you know, it's a big country. There's a lot of people here, you know, yeah. um, everybody gets a voice and sometimes you get a voice and other times other people get a voice or now, now you get one, well, here's one thing you say. It isn't that you're going to disappear. It's that there are more, you might say the table has gotten a little bit bigger and there are more people sitting at it. Can you imagine a country where you get some chairs at the table, but other people do too? Mm. And these other people who are now at the table, they love this country too. They love their mm. children and grandchildren. A lot of them love Jesus just as much or more than you do, right? So they're not your enemy. Mm -hmm. um, so but you know as far back as Frederick Douglass Frederick Douglass said you know nobody ever gave up power voluntarily it's just yeah. it's just hard 
So in one sense, I don't know that you can reason people, a lot of people, to getting okay with losing their power. Yeah. But, but to say it isn't that you're going to disappear or be wiped out. By the way, I think that's, you know, that, that talk about the great replacement theory that is all, all you know, all, oh, these, yeah. all these white people worried that the whole goal is to eliminate white people. What is that? I mean, that's total insanity, right? Um, but it is the goal. And now it's a goal that a lot of us share. In fact, this would be a nice challenge you could offer. Could you come to share in the goal of an mm-hmm. America where everybody has a valued place at the table and where one group doesn't hold the majority of the power? Mm-hmm. To me, that's as a Christian, I find that to be a beautiful goal completely in keeping with my faith and my yeah. ethics. Yeah. Why should that be threatening? Yeah. Oh, okay. Rashida, let me, let me give a shot at that question too. Um, because it is, I'm, I'm with David, that is a remarkable question and a gracious one because my first response, and maybe this is overly cynical, if I'm that guy with that worldview and you said that, it, really anything to me, I'd be concerned I have too many layers of triggers and white supremacy baked into my bones to hear anything. Um, I just read Me and White Supremacy uh, a couple weeks ago and it was just a reminder of how deeply embedded this normative vision of of the world and faith in the United States, to David's point earlier, is baked in whiteness. And I just, I'm not super optimistic. The only thing I could think of is if this person is in proximity with you and there's a relational trust, there may be enough equity to hear and to consider change and to consider an alternative and then I want to speak directly to my white male friends on this podcast listening. I don't think, Oshida, it's your responsibility, largely, to have that conversation with someone who holds that ideology, that white guy who wants to retain power. It's us. It's David and me who have to leverage our spaces and our influence. We talk about this a lot in regards to privilege. You know, Privilege, we talk about as just the ability to walk away. White guys have the ability to walk away from most social issues because it doesn't impact us. So we have to decide, when are we going to leverage our privilege? When are we going to lay it down? And I think this is a moment for us white guys to leverage it. If we have the relational equity with that bigoted white guy, and and we have to always do confessional work because we have it in us too, then we have to be the ones to say, hey, the table's getting wider, and and you've got to understand that the folks at that table also love Jesus, also love America, and they have a lot to contribute. And, and we have to like play lead blocker in some ways, or else it just our our crap gets thrown to you and you don't have to carry it. You shouldn't have to carry it, but you have. So um, maybe that's overly cynical, but I think it's it comes with some responsibility for us at the table. I agree with um, that. I do. Yeah. I appreciate that because I, I absolutely feel that that is, I'm in this weird position because I, I, because of the work I do, I feel comfortable entering to these spaces with white people and do the work of peacemaking. But I know that not every person of color is mm-hmm. called to do that or is, has a desire to do that. So thank you for practically helping me figure out what to do in this particular like calling to be a peacemaker towards white people. But also thank you for that protective stance because I think, again, we're not all called to practice peace the same way. Mm-hmm. And so people of color need to be able to say, that's not, I'm going to tap out. That's not yeah. for me. Yeah. 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 David, uh, we're, we're moving towards wrap-up, but we have a couple last questions. One, um, what's the best way for us, for our audience, to follow along with your work? 
uh, and you personally. And in the second, you can jump right into it. What, what's giving you hope in the midst of all this stew? And we're this is going to be coming out right as we're going to the the voting booth for the midterms. Uh, where are you finding hope in the midst of all this? Um, uh, how to find me, uh, davidpgushy.com. Um, davidpgushy.com. It's an unusual name, so hopefully not too hard to find. And I'm usually at dpgushy on all the major social media sites, so dpgushy. Um, I think what's giving me hope is, is that these dynamics are clearer now. And there's less fuzziness about the choice in front of us. Mm. Um, Christians need Christians in this country who have had a dominant position, white Christians, white male Christians, need to learn to follow Jesus out of, you know, resentful, privileged reaction to partnership service and community on equal terms with other human beings. Mm -hmm. And if we actually do that, then our, I think our political choices will follow from that. And that this is not a sacrifice of our Christian commitment. It is an expression of our Christian commitment. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so increasingly I see a very clearly growing movement of, of Christians who are ready to move forward. And that is a multiracial, multiethnic, multigenerational uh, movement of people who, who see the toxicity of this other and is just ready, no way, not doing that, right? So that is holistic. It, it's, it's how we do church life. It's how we, how we do our friendship life. It's what we read. It's who we talk to. Um, it's how we vote, how we engage on social media. But it's just a fundamental decision to move beyond white supremacist Christianity and Christian nationalist Christianity and move to something healthier. Mm. And mm -hmm. that is peacemaking, by the way. Now, it isn't going to feel like peacemaking for people who, who don't want to go on that journey, but yeah. there's the conflict piece of it. Toxic, yeah. mm -hmm. toxic semi-idolatrous Christianity must be named for what it is and must be repudiated. Hmm. I mean, what was peacemaking in the 60s? Was it attempting to integrate churches and having the people stand at the door, shout their segregationist Christianity? Or would it have been to back off from that, right? No, you, you move forward. You move forward and confront the injustice and the idolatry and, and in the end, um, win a lot of battles doing that. And in the end, you have more peace on the other side of that, but conflict is the path on the way to the peace, and that's what's so hard. That's good. Conflict is the path path on the way to the peace. Oh my gosh, that's so important. Mm -hmm. But but so conflict is also exhausting. <laughs> and not every day do we wake up saying, "I feel like having some good conflict today." That would be fun. No kidding. Yeah. No. Wow. We would say that's why it's the discipleship work. It's it's mm -hmm. the way of the cross, uh, and it reflects the Jesus we say we follow. But it's not easy <laughs> at any step of the path. Yeah. And I would say that's why we, there's Christian community. That's why, mm. you know, it's exhausting. So when I need to tap out, when I need to say, like, I cannot be in conflict, I cannot lean, push towards right now, somebody else can step in. That's exactly right. Sometimes working. you get a day off, right? You know, yeah. Yeah. and somebody else in the community is the one who steps forward and then it's your turn again, you know? Yeah. But yeah. you can't, that's why this is not an individual work. Yeah. Right. Wow. Wow. 
We're grateful well, for you, man. Thank you so much. This has been insightful and encouraging. Well, thank you for what you're doing. Um, and I, I would urge everybody who's listening, you got to stay grounded spiritually. There are many burned out ex-activists in the, in the world. Yeah. Yes. And um, so a daily rhythm of prayer and scripture and, um, and worship and keep, keep grounded. No day is so busy that there's not time to engage Jesus first before engaging whatever it is that Jesus brings us to do that day. Mm. Yes. Yes. That's a good word. Thank you. All right. Much love. Thanks for being on. Thank you for talking with me, and we'll, uh, we'll talk again another time, I hope. Indeed. Bye. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. So I, what I appreciate about our conversation with David Pigashi is that he is an academic, but he is such a grounded person. He's such a devoted disciple of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And I could just tell that in the way that he so lovingly and thoughtfully taught us, but then directed us back to Jesus in the Jesus way. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm so glad that you got to introduce us to your PhD advisor, John. Yeah. I think that's the, what you just described, Oshita, is one of the big reasons why I was compelled to, to study with and under him was like, a lot of academics honestly can be a bit stuffy and overly cerebral. And it's like the formational <laughs> elements don't resonate with me, at least. It seems more head than heart. And David is someone who I feel like is, is a really wicked smart academic, but also moves relationally and with a heart forward in ways that are accessible for the rest of us, you know? And I think that groundedness, especially when you're talking about such hard things. I mean, this dude talks about like the most polarizing issues in Christian America. And if you're not grounded, you're, you're probably not going to be super helpful. No. So tell, tell us a little bit about like, so your kind of academic brain, how did it get fired and super excited? Yeah. As we were listening to, uh, David, talk. I think the stuff in this episode, um, there's so much talk and so much great literature out there around Christian nationalism right now, but it's kind of tossed out a bit frivolously. Um, mm-hmm. and, and there's a huge blanket for it. And then, and then we almost use it as like a label and we put, we place it on all sorts of people who just seem to be a little, maybe more zealous around the United States than we are. So yeah. his nuance around that I think was really helpful. And to see the yes. history of this isn't just a new thing with MAGA, this is like a historic trend that when we want to retain power, we default to authoritarianism. When mm-hmm. when culture changes, we want to become reactionary to bring things back to the way they once were. And and that's all a mucked up version of Christianity. Mm-hmm. And so so when he's talking about that authoritarian, reactionary Christianity, rather than just like Christian nationalism at large, it was helpful for me to see this as okay, I can a bit I can diagnose what's happening now on a historical in a historical way and like you said it grows my empathy like it you begin to see that generations ahead of us maybe who are are falling victim to this in more ways are trying like to think of legacy in their future in their version of christianity to pass on to their kids and it's not all just inflamed rhetoric and hate although it can yeah. manifest itself in that way there's something deeper that's that's driving them right and then it also for me thinking about, oh, God was faithful and God was in the midst when those things happened in yeah. the past. God has, God, 
So God, it's with us now. Like, mm. uh, you know, I think that <clears throat> partly because of social media, because of the 24 hour news cycle, our access to information, I feel like there is a cultural catastrophizing mm. that we have normalized. Mm-hmm. And so to, to sit with somebody and say, this is a historical thing. This yeah. happens. This like, Societies do this. Yes, <laughs> so, right. Um, we're, we're not, we are not uniquely, uh, you know, we're not a uniquely evil generation mm-hmm. that these things are happening. Um, makes me grateful because God was with, with, was with yeah. people then and God is with us now. Yeah. We're going to be okay. <laughs> totally. It'll look different. You know, things will be different. Things will be shaken up, but we'll be okay. You yeah. Know? Yeah. It kind of pulls us out of that soundbite mic drop tweet level view of yes. what's happening. <laughs> it's helpful. Right. What about um, you from like what was popping for you in that conversation? Yeah. So what I appreciated, I mean, to you on the Enneagram pastor. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. like I, the second question is always my bread and butter question. Yeah. I love the second question we ask, like how do we actually do this work relationally? So I appreciated when he said, um, when I asked, like, how do we have this conversation? And he said, you know, sometimes we can say we don't have to talk about this today. This doesn't have to be the thing we always come to. And when I think about that, like the courage and the clarity to say, oh, we don't have to do this today. Mm -hmm. That also means that we're having a conversation or we're we're in in that relationship. We have a commitment to say, okay, we're going to be self-aware of our own spiritual grounding. We're going to be self-aware of our own triggers. We're going to try and say, nope, not today. We're like, we're going to, you know, try to have a conversation. No, we're not ready. So we'll step back. Maybe come in again. Should we have this conversation? I feel really triggered. Something bad happened. I don't think so. Mm -hmm. There's like a graciousness and a patience Mm -hmm. and a perseverance just in that one technique that he gave us of saying, "Yeah, yeah, we don't have to do this today because today means that there could be a potential tomorrow. That's right. And we want to make sure that we, both parties, are bringing our mm. most grounded and most loving selves to that conversation. And then I just appreciated both of your posture as white men when right. I ask, like, how do I be in these conversations? Because I want to be in these conversations, but, yeah. you know, it's it's kind of scary and exhausting, totally. especially going into this election season. So You bet. Yeah. I'm so glad what you about, brought that up. Thanks. What about you? I mean, the I, I think there was even his final word about uh, <laughs> there's there's always enough time to be with Jesus before you go out and do the work that Jesus calls you to do was mm-hmm. really resonant um, because yeah. I I can feel my brain and my heart begin to disconnect when I start getting frenetic or uh, about life and to do lists and angst and frustration and that reminder even among all the issues and for him as an academic and involved in all these things to say wait a minute we're not above in fact not only we're not above just good old-fashioned silence and prayer and and meditation we we it's the necessary sustenance for this work Uh, and really that's the peacemaking work you know if, if you're listening in we have Three days a week, we offer contemplative prayer through Global Immersion because we believe in that so much to to yeah. cultivate the soul of the everyday peacemaker. If we're not grounded, we're cooked. Yeah. Um, and so that was that was important too. And I don't know if that might lead in. What, what are you thinking in regards to practice? Yeah. So I was as he was um, talking about the questions that we need 
we could ask someone um, when we're noticing them, um, you know, hold on to bigoted or ideas that are rooted in white supremacy. So the question he asked is like, what are you afraid of? Like, you know, what are you afraid of and what makes you so angry? Like the visceral reaction to politics that we often have. And it made me think of this way that I had read the story of the prodigal son. I had read it during Lectio Divina and kind of had an aha moment that the son who was angry, the son who stayed, um, he was angry and he was afraid. He was angry that his brother was getting attention and love and care. And he was afraid that his father didn't see that he was faithful, he had been faithful. And then the father said, um, you've always been with me, everything I have is yours. Mm. So what I'm going to invite our listeners to do is to practice Lectio Divina with the story of the the parable of the prodigal son. Um, That's found in Luke 15, 11 through 32. Mm. Um, And before you do that, right at the top of the page, um, what am I afraid of and and what makes me angry? And read through that um, and practice Lectio Divina. And I would say, if you are a person like myself, I am not part of dominant culture. Um, I would, I should read that. I'm actually going to read, I'm going to read it from the perspective of the, of the angry son. Because now that I'm seeing a lot of people who look like me step into power, a lot of policies that I agree with, um, a lot of energy around changing some of the rights, I can be in danger of Mm self-righteousness. And I would say if you're somebody who is majority culture, maybe read it and look at yourself as like the the son who comes back. And what does coming back to a loving father mean and look like for you as you you enter into the season, practicing peace and politics? And then whatever, do whatever else the spirit tells you to do as you do Lectio Divina. But the process of Lectio, for those of you who are not familiar with it, there's five steps. The first one is you read the passage. And you intentionally read it slowly and carefully. I like to sometimes go through and circle words and phrases that shimmer or stand out to me as I read it that first time. Then you pause and you pray. So maybe pray those two questions. Lord, what am I afraid of? What makes me angry? And then you spend some time meditating about that passage. Um, uh, it, b- b- between each step, you read the passage again. So you read it and then, and then, you, uh, then you read it again. You read it, circle of things. You read it again, you pray. You read it, meditate. You read it again, and then you contemplate, which just is sitting and resting in God's presence. It's different than meditation. Meditation is actually thinking about, like, what is going on in this text as it relates to me. Contemplation is I'm just going to sit with God's presence as I see it and experience it in this text. Then you read it one more time with the next step or the final step of, actions like go and do likewise go and do whatever this the spirit is telling you through this scripture through the text so five steps again in each step you read it in between you read it circle important words or phrases you read it again you pray just have a conversation with god you read it again meditate what's coming up in that text for you as it relates to you read it again sit in god's presence read it again go and do likewise so spend some time it's the parable of the prodigal sign. And we'll see you back here for our next episode. Sweet. This is the beauty of uh, having a spiritual director in the co-host role. Thank you for that, Oshida. Okay, well, thanks for listening in, everybody. Uh, we encourage you to go to the show notes and download the PDF, which are free PDF, uh, with a series of practices that we've built uh, out of this season. Um 
and we want to offer this closing blessing as you go. May we not be driven by our fear, but by our pursuit of justice, peace, and flourishing. Thank you all.